0: How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 63 of The Essential X-Labs, where we are uh, continuing our split-team era for the X-Men. It's uh, the second of, well, two issues. Uh, They were only apart for two issues. This is the uh, last one here. But before we get into the comic, I did want to do a little bit of a... a little bit of treadmilling that we haven't done in quite a while here. Um, Now, if you were to visit the palatial cristate and take a look around the house here, you'd see, uh, you know, I've got my office and my little satellite offices, which is basically my way of saying just like, you know, the end of the dining room table that has a stack of books on it or the kitchen counter that has another stack of books on it. If you were to see all that stuff, you'd probably guess that I never, ever stepped foot off the treadmill, and that's that's kind of the way I like it. It hasn't looked that way in, in a little while. All my stuff has been... You know, very uh, just uh, situated, packed away, really not in much use. So being back, even as briefly as I've been back at this point, it's been a nice, uh, nice, I, I'd say change of pace, but it's more of just a, a feeling of normalcy. There are comics, there are magazines, printouts, indexes, glossaries, hardcovers, history texts, just anything that I have that, uh, I could fit into whatever era of comics that I'm discussing is just there, right there within my reach. And it's kind of a double-edged thing at the moment because, well, we're currently discussing perhaps the least discussed era for the X-Men ever. (laughs) I mean, you think about X-Men history here, especially the, I suppose, prehistoric history here going back before Claremont, you know, You got Stan and Jack, and of course everybody knows Stan and Jack. I think uh, most comic uh, enthusiasts at least have a passing uh, recognition for the books of this era. Of course, introducing the team, introducing Magneto, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and fighting Magneto like every month, or every other month. It was bi-monthly at first, but uh, fighting Magneto all the time. You know, it's something that you can kind of just identify by sight. Then Roy comes on, Roy Thomas comes on, and everybody knows Roy. And then, you know, we can skip ahead to when Roy comes back with Neil Adams. That's another uh, it's another run that people hold in, I don't want to say extremely high regard, but higher regard. And then I, I believe Roy takes us to the end of this first 66. We've got the Hidden Years, and then right on into um, Ween and Claremont, and we're just off to the races. But between those Roy Thomas runs, well, there were a couple more runs that... Uh, well, not much is said about. Uh, of course, that's the Gary Friedrich run and the Arnold Drake run that we just kicked off last episode. And, um, like I said, not much is written about those eras, and I actually tracked down some magazine interviews with the men themselves, and, well, they, they really don't have much to say about it either. It's weird. I, I, maybe it's a generational thing where... And I could be projecting, because I don't know anything, but um, Gary Friedrich, Arnold Drake, people of that era, I think this was kind of just a job, right? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure this was just kind of a way to make money, keep a roof over their family's heads, and uh, put food on the plate. And so I think there was far less of a, and, and again, I could be projecting, maybe less of creative pride in these stories. It's more just like, this is an assignment, um, it's been given to me. Gotta do it. I feel like creators nowadays could wax on for hours and hours and hours about five words they scribbled on a napkin. You know, about what the real meaning is and the artistic merit of those five words. Whereas, maybe an Arnold Drake and a, and a Gary Friedrich were just like, it's a job I did and, um, we're gonna go through, well, we're gonna kinda go through these interviews that I found here about, uh, the gentleman's time on the X-Men. But they're not going to have a whole lot to say, Uh, to the point where I'm not even sure why these interviews were included in the magazine I found them in. Um, Now, let's start with Gary Friedrich, who is no longer with the book. He is actually, at the time of this issue, he has run away from home. (laughs) He has run away to California. He's quit his Marvel job. He is. I don't know if he's in California yet, but he he hopped in his car and, and drove west. Perhaps he was driven mad by splitting up the X-Men. I don't know. Maybe he's looking for um, Beast and Iceman. I'm, I'm not sure. So let's get into it here. Gary Friedrich. This is from an interview appropriately titled I Was Never Really an X-Men Fan <laughs> that appeared in Alter Ego Magazine, issue number 24, May 2003. Cover date. This was the Men of X feature. features a lot of interviews with, um, well, with uh, the Men of X, the X-Men creators of the early years. Now this is probably like the single issue of a magazine that I've probably pulled out of my uh, little magazine box more than any other for tidbits on just some weird X-Men minutia. Because, I mean, this is... seriously, where are you going to find Gary Friedrich and Arnold Drake talking about their time on X-Men? Unless there's something something obvious out there that I'm missing, I haven't seen much of it. Anyway, now Gary, he explains that he got the gig on X-Men because Roy Thomas was burned out and, uh, well, they kind of just passed it off on him. And it would seem like at this time, Gary was maybe just below Roy in the Marvel Rider bullpen pecking order. The way it's explained here, like, assignments would roll downhill. Like, Stan would do it, and then Stan would pass it to Roy. Roy would do it, and then Roy would pass it on to Gary. I think Gary also inherited, like, Millie the model from Roy. Uh, Gary takes the blame for scripting the wretched red Raven issue and uh, I think that was x-men 44 and it was um, yeah it was pretty bad uh, you see Roy Thomas had planned to script that one himself which is why he you know took an entire issue to reintroduce one of the more boring golden Age characters in timely's pantheon of characters um, I mean red Raven even back during the golden age was... A bomb, You know, it only lasted a single issue. And it was actually a a Simon and Kirby creation, which is weird. It only lasted one issue. That's how (laughs) how little people cared about Red Raven. So, of course, Roy Thomas would try to bring it back for the Silver Age. Uh, Now, um, when asked about writing the X-Men, Groovy Gary offers us some amazing insight. You ready for this? I mean, it's going to blow your mind. He says, quote, I have to say that the whole memory of writing the X-Men has been flushed out of my memory. I just don't remember anything about it. Well, thanks for coming, oh, Really, uh, One thing he does remember is how annoyed the uh, letterer, Artie Simic, would get after getting um, Gary's overly verbose scripts. I guess it was like a running gag at Marvel offices that Artie would call in, complain about how many words he'd have to write, and uh, they would uh, kind of giggle at his expense. Gary would go on to recall that he uh, tried writing the X-Men as full script, rather than using the Marvel method, and he says that the Marvel artist bullpen not accustomed to writing from a script. So he says this was a complete and total disaster. And um, well, maybe maybe that uh, that shows in the work yard, or maybe or maybe they you know pulled back from full script and tried it the Marvel way, and maybe that didn't jive with Gary. Maybe it was just a bad fit. Now, when asked if he had any feelings toward the X-Men, Gary would say, well, that's the title of this interview. Well, I was never really an X-Men fan. I can't give you a particular reason why, but they never grabbed me. And you know what? In fairness and in credit to Gary, I feel like writers of the current year who aren't grabbed by the characters that they're assigned to just completely change those characters into whatever they wanted them to be anyway. You know, uh, character bibles aren't aren't a thing anymore, unfortunately. Uh, The interviewer, Jim Amash, or Jim Amash, I don't know how to say his name, uh, he editorializes here a bit. He suggests that the X-Men's roster of lackluster post-Kirby artists might have something to do with um, the lack of grabbability in the X-Men, which, I mean, poor Werner Roth just can't catch a break, can he? He's crapped on by, like, just about every... Anybody who talks about this era of X-Men like, yeah, the art sucked, it was boring. It's like, Werner was the guy who did it for, at this point, longer than anybody, I believe, and never seems to get any credit for it, which is going to be doubly frustrating in a few issues when Jim Steranko shows up on the book and people are, like, literally bending over backwards to say how great he is when... I don't know if this is a hot take or a spicy opinion here, but, um, Steranko's X-Men work... Not great. <laughs> I it, it's uh it's awkward. It's off model. It's uh I don't know. I, I honestly don't want to be a contrarian here, but I would take Werner Roth over the two issues that we get from Storanko coming up. I mean, genius design work. Really enjoy his covers, but the interiors. Maybe he was rushed. Uh, maybe he was a last minute fill in, or maybe they were just trying something out. Really not Storanko's best work in the X Men. Uh, in the X Men issues that he does. Anyway, back to Gary. Uh, He claims that he and Arnold Drake had never co-written anything. If you recall, last episode, our lead story was credited to both Gary Friedrich and Arnold Drake. And Gary says, nope, that was not the case, because, in fact, he had quit Marvel and he'd run away to California at this time. And uh, that pretty much sums up his time with our uncannies, which, wildly interesting, right? I'm really not sure why they spent two pages of this mag on this guy who clearly had no affection, no interest. I mean, sure, he was there, but I don't know. He didn't offer any insight and really didn't seem to care during the, uh, during the interview. Uh, from here, let's hop into a little bit about Arnold Drake. And this is an interview from that same magazine. Now, Arnold explains that he left DC Comics after seeing uh, the writing on the wall that Marvel was about to eclipse them. Now, he, this was one reason why he left. Uh, there were other things, but he doesn't really elaborate on them. I could be mistaken, but maybe it's that Union stuff that we talked about either last episode or the one before. Can't say for sure. The timelines are weird. Uh, Arnold claims that he'd offered Erwin Donenfeld, who was the son of DC Nationals co-founder Harry Donenfeld, to, uh, well, Arnold saw himself becoming DC's version of Stan Lee. He says that he explained to Erwin Donenfeld that uh, Carmine Infantino was DC's version of, of Jack Kirby, and that he, Arnold Drake, could very well be DC's Stan Lee. He promised Irwin that <laughs> within a year of him at the helm, DC would outsell Marvel three to one. Bless your heart, Arnie. I mean, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of uh, Arnold Drake, but perhaps it was a good thing that Erwin didn't take him up on that offer. Because, uh, yeah, I'm not saying it. Anyway, Arnold, of course, was already familiar with the X-Men when he took the gig. Clearly due to the similarities between that mag and his own Doom Patrol. He says that he brought this, uh, you know, the similarities, to Mort Weisinger's attention, who advised that he, quote, not get his bowels in an uproar. Mort said that, uh, <laughs> that a man in a wheelchair is not a new idea or a new character. Drake, well, he, doesn't ag- he didn't agree then and he doesn't agree now, a- at the time of this interview. He suggests that if Mort Weisinger had created that man in a wheelchair character, it probably would have been World War III. Arnold credits Stan on making comics creators stars. You see, DC wasn't so keen on giving credit back then. A lot of times, you know, I, I buy a lot of Silver Age back issues here, and it's, uh, when you buy a DC, it's very, very seldom, at least, you know, in the earlier 60s, that, uh, that there's going to be a credit there. Usually you have to look it up on a wiki or hope that they signed it somewhere. It's, it's hard to find who, uh, who wrote and drew these things, so... Stan offered credits, which was a big deal This was a, uh, an added perk And a way that creators could, uh, you know, up their value They could be recognized, they could become, you know, popular They can get their own sort of a fan base here And uh, this was something that Stan offered because Marvel was paying less Now Drake says that although Marvel was, in fact, paying less This whole, quote, star system Would attract some DC mainstays to come over because of this perk he said that they would take a pay cut to jump on board with Marvel. And um, at first, they would use pen names, just in case it didn't work out, as to not draw any ire from their DC bosses. And, of course, we've uh, we've gone through, you know, the pen names here. We've read about them in the bullpen bulletins. Our, our own Werner Roth came in as whatever the hell he came in as. It was the, it was the name of his... it was his two sons' names was, was his uh, pen name. I just don't remember... What it was off the top of my head. Uh, Arnold says that Stan was big on dialogue where DC wasn't. He says that Mort Weisinger set limitations on the amount of words to appear in DC Comics, like to the number. And uh, he stated that, uh, this is Mort, he says that he wanted, uh, uh, he basically wanted people to be able to read an entire comic in the time it took to vacate their bowels like uh, during a commercial break of a TV show. I, uh, I don't want to think about that since, like I just mentioned here, I do go through the back-issue bins, I do buy a lot of Silver Agers. I don't want to think about where they've been or what they may have bore witness to. So we, uh, we'll just move along. And, I mean, at this point in our little uh, Arnold Drake interview, you may be asking, Hey, Chris, when does Arnold Drake talk about his time on the X-Men during this interview about his time on the X-Men? <laughs> he really doesn't. He really doesn't talk about it much. Um, he says that uh, after the X-Men broke up, he kind of went back to his old Doom Patrol well, and he told some split-team stories, which he had done for the Doomies before coming over. Um, he also says that he really enjoyed writing the origin of X-Men backups, which... Really? <laughs> I I know we're having a blast reading them, right? Um, He also truly believes, or still did believe back in 2003 at least, that Marvel plagiarized the Doom Patrol with the X-Men. Now, he goes on to blame DC staffers, those using pen names at Marvel, for leaking the idea of a dude in a wheelchair to Stan Lee. He also points out how, in the Doom Patrol, he'd introduced the Brotherhood of Evil, and just a few months later, Stan introduced the Brotherhood of Evil mutants. Though, in an X-Men panel in the same magazine, he kind of he kinda walks that back. He kind of sings a different tune here. He says, and I mean, he's surrounded by, I think, Dave Cockrum, Roy Thomas, Jim Shooter. Uh, th- there's a few big movers and shakers as part of this panel. Here, uh, Arnold would say that Stan probably didn't consciously rip off the Doom Patrol. Now, after he says this, Roy Thomas raises the point that, uh, well, the Doom Patrol, if you squint, looks a whole lot like the Fantastic Four, which gets a a bit of a chuckle out of Arnie. Uh, He claims that he left Marvel because there just wasn't enough work for him, which seems kind of suspect, but uh, okay. And, uh, well, that gets us up to speed on our uh, last two creative teams for this era of books here. I'm trying to get as much much mileage <laughs> of anything here, because, I mean, these stories aren't great. Uh, they're very clearly not a priority at Marvel. They're kind of just filling a slot on the publication schedule. It doesn't feel like it's getting anywhere. It doesn't feel like anybody cares. So, hey, you know, we, we pepper in insight and uh, discussion anywhere we can, which... Um, Well, that portion of the show is over. So let's get into the uh, book itself here. Today we're talking about X-Men number 48. At a September 1968 cover date, the story is called... Beware Computo, Commander of the Robot Hive. Written by Arnold Drake. Pencils, Don Heck, Werner Roth. Inks, John Verporten. Letters, Irving Watanabe. Edit, Stan Lee. Cover price, 12 cents. Now the cover. This is our final X-Men featuring cover. And the names Cyclops and Marvel Girl are in huge font. Next issue, we go back to having the X-Men name and logo front and center. But it will be the last time using the original... I don't know, how would we describe the the original X-Men logo? The one with, like, the little crinkles at the end of the X. The, the crinkle logo, I don't know. It's going to be the last time we use that one. The issue immediately following that will change to the more recognizable Jim Steranko design, which is still basically... You know, when you think about the X-Men, that's the logo I think most of us think about. Now, our story opens on a modeling set, where a bikini-clad Jean Grey is posing for some fashion photos. Naturally, the leering goons behind the camera are all about it, including one named Mr. Dane. <laughs> no, no, it's no relation to someone we're going to be meeting next issue. Uh, Now, as our gal seductively runs her fingers through her hair and poses, uh, her thoughts go, well, where her thoughts always seem to go, to the dead professor. Now, we get a reminder that he'd done sacrifice himself to stop grotesque from doing whatever the hell it was he was going to do. I I honestly don't remember. We also get a bit of exposition here regarding the disbanded X-Men. You see, Bobby and Hank have been sent to California, Maybe to find um, Gary Friedrich, I don't know But um, they're in California, despite the fact that we just saw them in New York City last issue When they fought the Mahayogi Anyway, Gene and Scott are, in fact, still in New York When it would have been just as easy to say they were in California, I guess And Warren is a roving agent Boy, I'm sure he's got a ton of interesting adventures to share, right? Maybe he ran into Red Raven again, who knows Anyway, during the shoot, one of the drooling simp photogs trips over a cable, threatening to pull down a whole bunch of lighting equipment. Jean works her TK voodoo on the gear, making it so it kind of pauses in mid-fall, long enough for one of the grips to, you know, get a grip on it. Apparently, this is like the skaty 800th near-miss on the set since Jean arrived, and a mustachioed goon suggests that she might just be their good luck charm. Uh, maybe, maybe Jinx is more like it if these near accidents only started upon her arri- arrival. But uh, whatever. Uh, old Magnum PI here is—he's uh, <laughs> looking for a kiss. It's—it's he, he, it's pretty gross here. He—he he like does that whole slow descent toward her cheek. He almost gets the kiss, but then Scott Summers bursts on the set. Now he tells Magnum to back the f up lest he get his ass kicked and the other models swoon at the bespectacled stud. Now, Scott, he actually goes in swinging. He's, like, literally throwing punches at this mustachioed man. Now, Gene is able to hold Scotty back long enough to defuse the situation. Now, as our man cools his jets, he is swarmed by the other models who all seem to want a piece of him. (laughs) And, And, I mean, old Scotty is wearing a rather fetching turtleneck sweater under a blazer he 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 looks like he looks like such a geek. Um, anyway, an annoyed Gene grabs Scott and they leave the set together. Meanwhile, underground, a computer monitor is, I guess giving birth to a bunch of ugly robots. Now, these are our bad guys. These are our villains, and boy, do they make me miss the likes of the plant man and Porcupine? Now these baby bots pledge their allegiance to Computo before we shift back to our heroes. Now we find out that Scott and Jean are only posing as a small town girl and a jealous boyfriend for reasons. I, I mean, is is there any is there really any need for the subterfuge here? I mean, it would be like if I'd moved to a new town and pretended to be a candlestick maker. Who who in the hell would even care? It's like oh, here's this guy. Okay. Anyway, Jean tells Scott that he needs to get a job in order to keep up their ruse. To which he informs her that he's already two steps ahead, as he pulls out a pocket radio. On the air at that very moment is the voice of Scott Summers. You see, he's a radio newsman who recorded his latest episode a few hours earlier. So I guess that's as up to the minute as the news would get back in ye old 1968. And I wonder if Scott has a degree in that or any experience in that. I don't know. For some reason, Scott and Jean are suddenly inside Scott's recording booth. I don't know if they found the power of teleportation, but they're there. Gene finds a record album of her new favorite band, Chocolate-Covered Ash Can, who I believe opened for Speedy's band Great Frog at some point. Anyway, Scott spies out the window that a bunch of new vacuum tubes are being delivered to up the ampage on the radio station. What he doesn't see, however, is that a bunch of geeky and pathetic robots have stowed away on the truck. Well, he doesn't see it immediately, anyway, but they do make their presence known and felt pretty quick. And I mean, they're zapping and zarking at the poor unloading fellows here. Scott and Jean rush off to change into their work togs, and after three too many pages of teen-on-bot action, the baddies take their leave. Jean goes on to use her uh, recently-inherited powers of telepathy to scan the fleeing Cybertrons for mental patterns. And oddly enough, she's able to find some. Okay. Uh, They track the bots to the Apex Sand and Gravel Company, which is an abandoned worksite high in the desert mountains of... New York City. Okay. I'm telling you, these two should have been in California. Um, we talk about the lack of priority this book seems to have. I wonder if Smiley is uh, asleep at the wheel here. Or maybe if, maybe these X-Men stories are so boring and bad that he's just okaying them without actually having to read them. And uh, I can't say that I'd blame him. Anyway, Scott optic-blasts the side of the mountain, opening up a cavern full of tunnels for them to explore. They're ultimately led to Computo and the Cybertrons being all dull and lame. After a robot murder ritual, <laughs> we're back to fight mode. And 800 pages later, it's revealed who's really behind all of this. It's uh, the famed and storied X-Men villain, Quasimodo. A.K.A. the Quasimotivational Destruct Organ. Uh, Now this would be his third appearance, and the first time that he's being pitted up against good guys who aren't the Fantastic Four. His prior two appearances were in Fantastic Four Annuals 4 and 5. Quasi was a sentient computer created by the mad thinker, and last we saw him, he'd been turned into a stone gargoyle by the Silver Surfer. Okie doke. Uh, No sooner is our baddie revealed than he flees the scene. Well, not before setting his underground tunnels to flood. As the waters rush in, Cyclops and Marvel Girl escape to the surface, and, uh, well, that's where we leave it. That's the end. Now, our next issue blurb promises the Beast and Iceman will face Matoxo the Lava Man, which, thankfully, is not true. Though this story will eventually see print, like 30 years later, in the 1994 Marvel Christmas special. (laughs) Like I said here, these blurbs... We're batting like 200 with the accuracy of these blurbs. But um, that's our lead story. And speaking of wrong blurbs here, our backup story is supposed to be the origin story for the Angel. It's not. It's not. It's, um, I can't say whether it's better or worse. It's, it, it's one we have so much to say about. Um, it's called Yours Truly, the Beast. Written by Arnold Drake with pencils by Werner Roth Inks John Verporten Letters Irving Watanabe Edits Stan Lee Like I said, this was supposed to be the origin of the angel And Stan's even going to address that uh, boner in the coming issues here Uh, This is not unlike the Iceman backup last issue It's basically Beast doing Beast stuff for five pages I mean, he does write a lot using his toes, if you're into that that's really it. Not much to say here, and even so, it's probably more interesting than that angel backup would have been. But uh, I guess our mileages may vary. Well, those are our stories. Um, don't have a whole lot to say about them. Um, I'm looking forward to this. Uh, to this era being over. That's that's for certain. Um, how about we just hop into the mutant mailbox? Uh, this is the back half of this program. We're going to start with a letter from Masao in Hawaii. Now, they try to get a no prize by saying telekinesis isn't a real term. Instead, it should be psychokinesis. And I, I, I guess we gotta be on the level with our terminology on made-up superpowers? Uh, Stan basically tells them to shove it in the most polite way possible. Barbara in Milwaukee tries to scientifically explain Angel being locked in an electrified cage back in X-Men number 44. Which, uh, that's the Red Raven issue, I believe. Um, The famed, the infamous uh, Red Raven issue. Which I read like a hundred years ago, so I do not remember the scene in question. Uh, She suggests that Warren should have been electrocuted when he touched the, quote, fancy flashlight that controlled the cage. Anybody remember that? I sure don't. Anyway, Smiley wriggles at a issuing this no prize as well, saying that the fancy flashlight wasn't actually electrified, which, I don't know about you, but that's good enough for me. We've got Bruce and Charles in Phoenix, New York. Phoenix, I didn't know there was one. Now they got some bones to pick, and they have a numbered list. I love, love numbered lists and letters pages. Those were always, when I was a kid, those were always the ones that I'd read. You know, I love the numbered questions, or... Points or whatever. 1. They hate the new costumes. 2. They ain't keen on Professor X being offed. 3. Marvel's reluctance to go back to the classic costume, so kinda C. Point 1. 4. The X-Men title being downplayed on the cover of the book. 5. Um the X-Men title being downplayed on the cover of the book. Again, so I guess C, item 4, which is actually item 3, since 3 is 1. Okay, Uh, the final item, they don't like that the X-Men were split up. They fear that this will lead to each of the X-Men getting their own books, but then goes on to suggest that Bobby and Hank team up, then that Gene and Scott team up, and suggest that Angel be a loner, which, I mean, that's kind of exactly how these little ditties went, isn't it? Uh, They go on to kvetch some more about the ugly new costumes until their pen ran out of ink. To which Stan basically just says, stay tuned. Tom in Virginia says X-Men is his favorite book, Spider-Man comes in second, and he congratulates Marvel on offing the professor. Stan says, basically stay tuned. We got a VIP here, Tony Isabella in Cleveland, Ohio. Now, Tony says that he enjoys the Origin backups, but, well, they're also eating a little too much into the pages of the lead-off story. Now, the feature stories have suffered, and Tony says that they've become, quote, extremely poor. He says that the Factor 3 story was dragged out too long, and um, even though that was 100 years ago, yeah, his point is well taken. That was a very drawn-out story, and not a very good one. He says that the weak-ass baddies like Grotesque have watered down the concept of Marvel Monsters. Also, Magneto kind of sucks nowadays. Well, Magneto's kind of dead nowadays, but okay. Tony suggests that the origin backups be shoved into a 25-cent special or something, clear up the pages of the X-Men main mag. Now, rather than address any of this, Stan kind of deflects. He says that the Marvel superheroes mag will be getting an original story every issue and says that the Phantom Eagle is making his debut right now. Regarding Grotesque, he tells Tony to shove it. You see, he got a ton of fawning letters from the fans about this weak-ass monster. Everybody will, everybody loves Grotesque, except Tony Isabella and, well, probably anybody listening to this show. Next up, we got Werner in California. says that X-Men number 44 felt like filler. And of course, this is the famous Red Raven issue So yeah, his point is well taken And we just found out that it was, you know, something that Roy Thomas plotted But Gary Friedrich was stuck uh, scripting because, well, nobody cared about it Werner suggests that since the X-Men were set to appear in Avengers number 53 that month Well, X-Men 44 was, quote, filled with a bunch of garbage (laughs) Gotta love it Uh, Questions, we have numbered questions here One, how can Red Raven fly? Two, why didn't Raven say anything about Warren's wings? And three, why have they started downplaying the X-Men title on the cover? Now Stan kind of answers the questions. And I mean, nobody cares about Red Raven. So we'll just see what Stan has to say about the change in the X-Men logo, the X-Men title. Uh, He says, we changed the logo because we changed the format. The X-Men will still be the same, but the emphasis will be on them as individual mutant superheroes rather than as a team. Well, until next issue, anyway. I mean, they've only been... They only split them up for two issues. This one and the one before. Don't know. Next up, Bob in Michigan says the Red Raven issue was superb. (laughs) What? Okay. Uh, Bob also... I mean, this must be someone in the bullpen here. Uh, This is the... This is the contrarian uh, opinion here, because Bob also really, really likes the X-Men's new costumes and is sorry to see that Professor X was killed off. He then lobs a softball over the plate for Stan. He wants to know how strong the Beast is in comparison to some of Marvel's heaviest hitters. Now, Stan says that the general opinion on the costumes is about 50-50 for and against, and he also ain't sure how the Beast stacks up to folks like the Hulk or the Thing. But that's our uh, mighty—no, not mighty. What? What is this? This is the mutant mailbox. Ain't the mighty Marvel. Whatever the hell. We we'll get into that in a little bit. But first, we got to do the bullpen bulletins proper here, otherwise known as items of incredible import to illuminate your interest, invigorate your imagination, and intoxicate your id. I got through that on the first try. Item: Marvel gets a plug in TV guide. Quote, Marvel has become champ of the comic book game, 50 million books a year, with a high number of them selling to college kids. And Stan says that he put this in here not to brag, but he's here just to say thanks. Now, this was an article from the March 23rd to 29th, 1968 issue of TV Guide called The Weirdo Superhero. Now, Stan was quoted in it saying, quote, superheroes have been around for a million years, We revitalize them. He explains what makes the Marvel hero different. Quote, So what if a hero is the strongest being on Earth? Doesn't he also have acne, sinus trouble, and problems dating girls? Now, in describing the thing and totally ingratiating himself to the fandom, Stan says, quote, People can identify with someone who's not beautiful. (laughs) You say that guy could be me. Unquote. Now, uh, worth noting, well, maybe, um, our old friend Freddie Wortham is also quoted in this very same article. He's now discussing violence in cartoons influencing violent behavior in children. He explains that uh, these violent cartoons have added to the, quote, fetish of violence, unquote. So to quote some song we may have all heard a few times, uh, same as it ever was. Item, Marvel moves, the bullpen shaking things up here Gene Colan and Tom Palmer are joining forces on Doom Patrol Not not Doom Patrol, what the hell am I talking about? Got it on the brain They're actually joining forces on Doctor Strange We also got Johnny Craig and George Tuska on Iron Man Item, a GI in San Francisco is looking for Marvel Maniac pen pals So Stan shares his address here I won't share his address because he probably doesn't live on base anymore Item. Marvel merch is running amok. Toys and games from Louis Marx, Ohio Art, Western Publishing, and Kenner. Stan says for more info, grab Marvel's Groovy Magazine number three. Anybody have a copy of Groovy Magazine number three they'd like to share some pictures from? Hit me up. Item. Welcome to the Marvel bullpen to the, quote, king-size leprechaun, Arnold Drake. Welcome, Arnold. Uh, Next up, we got Stan's Soapbox, and um, things are getting problematic on the Soapbox, because Stan says he's gotten a zillion letters asking for his opinion on social issues. He lists off items like Vietnam, civil rights, the war on poverty, and the upcoming United States presidential election. The election at the time was Richard Nixon versus Hubert Humphrey. Now, Stan says he's flattered that the fans are interested, but says among the bullpen, no opinions are unanimous. He explains that there are just as many staunch Democrats as there are dyed-in-the-wool Republicans at Marvel. Stan says he doesn't believe in party lines and that each person should be judged by their actions. He says the, to judge someone on their political beliefs is not wise, and he believes that everyone should be treated with tolerance and respect. Imagine if Marvel, or comics in general, still felt that way today. It's... It's almost like a different world Anyway, more on Stan Soapbox getting relevant in the coming months here But um, let's hop over to our wrap-up here The mighty Marvel checklist We got Sergeant Fury number 58 Where the Howlers are confronted by Hitler's agent of 1,000 faces Silver Surfer number 2 pits the Surfer versus E.T.'s from a UFO Sounds wildly interesting Fantastic Four number 79 Thing versus someone he can't fight. And also Sue is still pregnant. Spider-Man number 65. Spidey protects his secret identity and deals with a deadly jailbreak. Avengers number 56 The True Fate of Bucky Barnes. Till, well, you know. Avengers Special number 2 The Current Avengers versus the Originals. Daredevil number 44 features DD Dee Dee wanted for murder. Mighty Thor, number 156, is Ragnarok, probably for the hundredth time of a million times. I think every other month, Thor is dealing with Ragnarok, or the threat of Ragnarok. Captain America, number 106, this is an epic so different that Stan doesn't even know how to describe it. I guess we'll take his word for it, or assume that it just hasn't been written yet. Incredible Hulk, number 108, Colonel Yuri Brevlov in hot pursuit, and the Hulk still fighting Mandarin. Hulk Special Number One versus the Boring Inhumans, Iron Man Number Six, the mind-blowing return of the Crusher, Submariner Number Six still fighting Tiger Shark, probably still fighting underwater, Not Brand Ugh Number Nine for a third month running and still double everything and still wildly unfunny, Captain Marvel Number Six versus a baddie with the power of the sun itself, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield Number Five asks, whatever happened to Scorpio. Doctor Strange, number 173, has the Doc still fighting Dormammu. Sergeant Fury Special, number 4, features the Battle of the Bulge. Captain Savage, number 6, has the Leatherneck... Easy for me to say. Leatherneck Raiders protecting Australia from a Japanese invasion. Then we got our reprint corner here. Collector's Item Classic, 17, Marvel Tales, 16, and Tales of Asgard, number 1. But, my friends, that is where we're going to leave it today, um... You know, despite the fact that these stories are a little bit lackluster. <laughs> a little bit lackluster. Look at me using the uh, kid gloves here. Um, despite the fact that these stories are not very good, I'm still happy to be sharing them here, and uh, I'm, you know, beyond happy to have this outlet, uh, of, you know, recording our little discussions here and, uh, and sharing these stories, because, honestly, I don't know that I'd be reading them. I'm sure I wouldn't be reading these stories otherwise, and it's been so long, Since I read anything of this era that, uh... It's almost like it's all new to me. And, I mean, it's not great. Like I said, it's not great at all, but... I don't know. I'm I'm still happy that we're doing it. And I think it'll, uh... uh, probably won't add much to our current year reading, but, um... I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm happy that we're doing this, and I'm happy that you're here (laughs) to join me on this, uh... On this road less traveled, the Friedrich Drake era of, uh... The Uncanny X-Men, but, um... Lest I Babylon. Let's just uh, let's just get to the outro before uh, I think of something else to say. Um, you could reach me all the usual ways here. Chris is on infiniteearth.com, weirdcomicshistory@gmail.com, uh, Ace Comics on Twitter, Xlapsed on Facebook. You know the you know the places. If you if you want to find me, I'm not too hard to find. But with all that said, I'd like to thank you all so much for choosing to spend a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as often, I'll talk to you again real soon. See ya.